0: Life, the universe, and everything in between. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. Human statistics now on the Weekend Variety Wireless. Ipsos New Zealand do the stats and we give them a buzz and talk to Jonathan Dodd about them. Hi Jonathan, how are you? Yeah, good thanks, one. Thank you for with being with us today. This evening we're going to talk about New Zealand issues, and they've got a, a, a bit of a political theme and about New Zealand New Zealanders' attitudes to a various range of issues. Where are we starting?
1: Yeah, you well, know, I don't think you can avoid politics We're talking about you know large social issues, of course, because they're either seen as a uh, a reflection or a court of, of the government, and the government mm-hmm. can contribute to them, and the gov- government can can help improve them, but. I mean, right up front, it's interesting. This is a uh, third time of late we've been measuring some of these things, and in particular when we're asking people about how positive they feel about the government. And when we first did this, so this is mm. just before the uh, the election, so it would have been the National Party at that time, and when they basically asked to be ranked on a scale of you know, zero to ten, ten being the best, the government at the time had a score of four point nine.
2: Mm.
1: And then, so of course, you know that's probably what happens for a government's about to get. Um, out. Um, then after that uh, went up to five. And that was all about this time last year, but of course you always got the honeymoon effect and people, you know, going in for a new government. Not yes. so a huge change though, but I think that just reflects that it wasn't exactly a, uh, a tidal wave um, of support for for the new government. It was, you know, it was pretty close. Um, but what's interesting is that it's got even better so just recently when we did that survey the general uh, level of positivity has like quite a bit to an average level of 5.4 So that's um, quite a lot higher and um, particularly you know you've got about um, a third more people feeling positive than negative and always the people in the middle so you know, um, it's, you know it's just one year now I think they've been yeah, in power it was pretty shocking to hear the other day so people generally feeling good about that, but still getting more and more concerned about other
2: issues.
0: Mm, y- yeah, that, I mean that's interesting because going back to July 17 a year ago when the score was 4.9 and then going up to 5.4, just for, for those of us that aren't statisticians, that doesn't sound like a lot, 0.5, but is, is that quite a significant margin in the survey? Is yeah, it,
2: it is. It
1: is and we this is surveyed in over six hundred people, so the margin error there is around about three so um and that's three percent, so we've actually got you know like a, uh, a about an eleven percent improvement increase in those actually saying um giving a, a score in the top the top four you know seven eight, nine, or ten so we need to look at it that way you know we've gone up um quite substantially in that regard, so yeah it's not just a subtle difference here where it looks small, but it's a, a significant it is quite clear. And even bigger, though, is when you ask people what the issues are, and I think we have to recognise when you're asking people what's on their minds and what are they worried about, it's not necessarily a measure of the incidence of a problem, but often sometimes just the awareness of a problem. Mm. So, of course, you know, when you've got um, a government that has been saying for for a long time, you know, um, there's no housing crisis i mean john key actually saying that there's no housing crisis um and now you've got a new government that has um no problems in saying there is one because of course they can blame it on the previous government and that's what always happens when a new government comes in they can acknowledge a problem because <laughs> yeah. it's not an acknowledgement of their own their own problems so, you know, whichever side of the argument of, of, of the fence you're sitting on, this is just something that can happen when a new government comes on board and they can go, actually, we can come up truth and share all these stats. So, as a result, and partially perhaps because um, housing is still an issue, the problem hasn't been solved overnight. When we asked people what are the top three issues of concern, and we gave them a list of over 20 odd issues, um, the number of saying housing and the price of housing and housing affordability and all those related issues is a key issue. That's gone up 9%. So half of New Zealanders are going um, housing and housing affordability is a real big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's interesting because the proportion citing specific things like the cost of living or poverty in general, that didn't change too much when, of course, it's all part and parcel of the same thing. So they're very clearly saying... Um, people might have the same degree of poverty in the past, but the degree of housing affordability has really gone through the roof. And we know how homelessness has definitely come through as a a key issue. So that, along with um, environmental concerns, which is interesting, it's still quite a bit down the list, but that's increased a lot. Everybody worrying about their plastic bags and straws. Um, And funnily enough, petrol prices. (laughs) <laughs> mm. Now, bear in, so bear in mind, I think we talked about this a while back about the fuel, fuel tax and so forth, and when you bear in mind that around about a third of the sample is going to be Aucklanders, and we did find out that Aucklanders, um, not surprisingly, are more concerned about the price of petrol, given they pay the extra tax, then that has definitely jumped um, doubled actually, from 8 to 16% of people saying it's a bit of an issue.
0: Yeah, and I like it how you split that out into Aucklanders, yes, it's 16% is the uh, is the average, yeah. but in Auckland it's 20% and the rest of New Zealand is 13%. 15. So yeah. obviously Aucklanders are, are a little bit more concerned and, and rightfully so given their regional fuel tax.
1: Yeah, but when we did the other survey about that, we did find out that um, particularly before the tax came in, Aucklanders were often just as um, accepting of it because so long as... And this is the big the big caveat, so long as a tangible improvement to public transport and infrastructure would, would come as a result. Um, but I guess in the first couple of months all you see are increased costs, but you don't see a you know, a magical expansion of public transport or motorways just happening overnight. So I guess you've got to have a bit of the pain before you get the game.
0: Yeah, I just want to run through a couple of these stats just for the listeners because they are interesting in their raw form. Um, those top three issues that um, that you did mention: fifty percent of respondents said that housing. Um, there are thirty-two percent poverty and inequality, thirty-one percent healthcare and hospitals, inflation. Twenty-six uh, percent of respondents, so just over a quarter of people think that's an issue. The one that the two that stood out for me as interesting was uh, crime and law there was a, a massive justice conference uh, or summit that hasn't changed on 24 percent so unmoved people 24 percent of respondents thought it was an issue last time you did this and, and that hasn't moved but the drug and alcohol abuse has actually dropped from 22 percent of respondents thought it was an issue down to 17 arguably that's been more of a topic of discussion too with med- medicinal cannabis and the potential for a referendum at the next ele- election so yeah,
1: yeah medicinal can- cannabis is seen as a it's, it's not abuse you know um it's always framed with an issue of health care and so forth mm. um, whereas the synthetics and so forth for are trust and seen as the issue but bear in mind i um, not not all the stats can go up because of um one issue becomes more important then another one's got to go down because we say, you know, that's right. you nominate your top three. Mm. So something else has got to
0: go down as well. Um, what happens Yeah, what happens when you break it up into the segments of what people earn? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing because
1: – and I think it does show um, – that it's not just say, you know, oh, poorer people who are moaning about house prices and this kind of a thing, you know, because so you, you always get people going, well, you know, I'm doing okay, or if they just stopped having smashed avocado for breakfast, they'd be able to afford that mortgage. But actually, those on higher incomes were more concerned about um, housing issues, which is quite interesting. So, those with um, household income on over 100,000, 59% of them were concerned. About housing affordability and so forth, and people even realised that this it was forty percent. So well, wealth is not a uh, insulation, and even if you can afford it yourself, you may be thinking, Well, I can, but what about my kids?
2: Mm. Mm. Uh,
1: so that that's an important issue. That it's not just an issue of concern for poorer people. Um, in fact, it tends to be if you're poorer, under earning under thirty k, you're, you're you're saying it's much more important, or if you're wealthier whereas the people in the middle are saying, well, it's just the same as it ever was. So, mm.
2: um,
1: so that's of interest. And also, um, I mean, you do get those differences like when you split it by age. You know, you know, older people are more concerned about health issues and younger people are more concerned about drug and health abuse. And that just reflects the fact that you're more concerned with the issues that you see around you. You mm. mm. see around you, you see people suffering from those issues, you become more concerned with it. So, of course, if you're elderly, you're going to see the healthcare system more often than young people and vice versa. Mm.
0: Yeah, uh, 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 one, of the, yeah, one of the things for the 18 to 24-year-olds, 35% of the young people are worried about inflation and cost of living. But that didn't even get a look in in the top five things for people over 65 years old. They, yep. they were more worried about drug and alcohol abuse, which the 18 to 24-year-olds aren't worried about at all. Uh, 18 yeah. to 24-year-olds, 23 of them yep. are worried about unemployment. And of course, the 65-pluses, well... They're not worried about unemployment because a lot of them are. Uh, well, not the lot of them, but a majority of them you will assume would have, would be retired. So, yep. you know, it is interesting the difference, um, you know, in generations, and I think that's that's what's happening in New Zealand at the moment. The, the gap between the generations uh, and the gap between the baby boomers and the younger liberals that that are coming into the job market at the moment is they do have very different views of New Zealand.
1: Well, they do. Um, generational differences are not new, though, you know, so there are always going to be generational differences. But uh, I do agree that because there are some people that go, there aren't actually generational differences. You're just looking at people at different stages of their life. You know, mm. today's liberal is tomorrow's conservative. Um But you have to look at the social context in which they are experiencing the different life stages, just like we we talk about people being post or pre-war generations, you know, they're different things. And today's younger people are in an incredibly different environment. You're right, they're in a more more urban um, New Zealand, they're in a more connected New Zealand, more international New Zealand, and so they see New Zealand and the, the world very differently than older people. Mm. Um, and the issue right there when you talked about them being more concerned with inflation and cost of living, well, it's just because, you know, with the inflation of housing is going up faster than their salaries, they can look at that and go, well, I'm never going to catch up. So whereas um, older people might be looking at things like drug and alcohol abuse and can, seeing all the bad news in the media and being more concerned about that or mm-hmm. more fearful about safety in their old homes. So it's, it, when you look at these differences, they make sense. What I think is particularly interesting, though, is because you can always sit here and go, well, younger people are this and older people and wealthy. But, of course, it's the difference between the genders. (laughs) we are not allowed to say there are differences between genders these days, but, boy, they certainly come across statistically. Um, And, again, I think you've got to make suppositions as to why these differences exist, and some people may dispute the reasons why, but it is interesting that you see, for example, that women are much more concerned about housing affordability.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, we know that women are more likely to generally earn less, but are also more likely to be the key um, carer of children. Mm. So, housing affordability and suitable housing affordability is going to be more important for those who have got children to care for and probably have lower income. So, mm. it's only natural that women are more concerned uh, with housing issues um, and also quite a lot more concerned with healthcare and hospitals. Mm. We, we know that women women see their GPs more often and they're often the ones who are um, older because older people are more likely, as a female skew as it women live longer. So you know, if you look at the older people that are more concerned with health care, they're more likely to be women. They're also more likely to be caring for elderly relatives, more likely looking for their children. So they're well and truly more plugged into the health system than the average guy. So you see that coming through. Yes. Um, more more the Women are much more likely to talk about poverty Full stop.
0: than men, yeah, and, and men more interested or, or concerned about um, law and order and crime, um, yep. where and women are more more concerned about poverty and inequality. So exactly, they, I mean men are much more likely to be in prison. Not that we can interview prisoners, I
1: don't think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess if they have internet access, they can do a survey. Um, but yeah, you're right, and men are more likely to be um, victims of violence as well. So it all, it's all wrapped up when you start looking at the situations people are in. You can see yep. what's coming through. We're talking
0: stats but here, ladies and gentlemen. When we're not just generalising or summarising, we're looking at the stats. So these, you know, this is what we're deducing from it, uh, as opposed to us just having a ramble here. So hold fire on your Texas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the um, yeah, and and just getting just uh, finishing off, rounding off the statistics the the stats area for tonight before we get into the marketing psychology. On that point you made on inflation, I've I've been thinking about it. Those people, those older people lived through the 70s and 80s where inflation was rocketing out of control 15, 20%. And that's why they must be sitting back thinking today, oh, 2%. It's, you know one and a half percent inflation nothing to worry about and of course the younger people don't have a comparable in terms of what's happened in the past too so yeah there's a lot i guess there's a lot of factors or explanations and many ways you can read into the stats uh, But at yep. th- the end of the day they don't lie marketing psychology tonight we're going to talk about segmentations
1: yeah, and I mean, this is one thing that sort of came to mind the other day when I was looking at looking at the news. And some listeners may have read some recent news. It was in the Herald about uh, you know yet another new way that researchers have developed to categorise personalities. Mm-hmm. And they called it reserved, role models, average, and self centred. And the thing is, most people are probably aware of you know the whole idea about categorising personalities, what personality traits you have, and how you can be categorised. And if you've been um, had the fun of being inflicted by HR departments with this kind of thing. You'll be familiar with things like the Myers-Briggs test Yep, that um, was developed with zero scientific input. Um, there's another one called DISC, which looks at your degree of dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance factors. There's one called the human brain dominance things. And actually, when you get into it, there's even just horoscopes. You know, it's all just different (laughs) ways. Or people talk about being an A and B personality. Or the big thing these days is that it's now become socially acceptable to say you're an introvert. You know, and it's all just ways of of categorizing this. And I know that there were often people that go, oh, it's just all rubbish, all individuals and all the rest of it like that. But the fact is the fact that we tend to congregate and socialize with people with similar ideas to us, and we, you can often, I don't know if you're like, you know, you'll see people out in public and you mm. think, my goodness, what are they wearing? Or how can people <laughs> listen to that racket Or why can you believe how some people live? You know, we've all had those moments mm. where you, you look at people very different to ourselves and don't re- realize that they're probably looking at us and going and asking the same thing about, you know, the way we... We live and dress and mm. and so forth, and these all reflect us the fact that we've all got different um, personalities and so forth. But it's not like there are four billion individual personalities in the world. You know, there are personality groups and there are people that are all act in very similar ways and so forth. And we know that because you know the accountant at your at your job is probably going to be a different personality to the to the salesperson. Mm. You know, we've all seen that. So, so it's all pretty obvious. So, and the key is how you, how you look at it. And, um, and it's all quite fun when you sit there and do these um, online quizzes to find out your profile, what kind of dog you'd be, and all the rest of it. But we actually do this a lot in market research, and marketers use this a lot. And it's basically segmenting people along the lines of their attitudes and behaviours in relation to the category in question. When mm. I say category, it might be in relation to how you go about buying dog food, planning a holiday, buying a house, mm-hmm. wearing a pair of brand of clothes, listening to a certain radio station. You know, there'll be very different people that listen to Radio Live than listen to, I don't know, probably the concert program, for example. Mm-hmm. I've got to talk about non-commercial competitors. Um, but you see, they're all different. So it's we, we segment people all of this. I've never done market research surveys. You know We ask them a whole lot of attitudes about the way they feel about certain products or or the, the way they feel when they consume certain services and things like that. But it's A lot of the time, it all goes into the magic, so we can come out and talk to clients and go, look, 20% of the people are like this, mm. this is the kind of things they like to, to, to read about, this is what they value, this is what's important to them, this is who they are and do all these big profiles. And unfortunately, when we talk about this a lot in, in market research or marketing, it sounds really Mickey Avellian. You know, it sounds a bit sneaky and dodgy that you profile people like this and, and what have you. And I mean, I have to say that you, we never reveal individual people. It's all just describing en masse. Yeah. But the key is, um, it, and this is how um, I sleep at night as, as a market researcher, is that um, at the end of the day, when it, you know if you see an advertisement that you hate, well, it's, you hate it because it's missing the bark it's selling something you don't like or you think it's rubbish or you disagree with the claim or rest of it. but if you see an advertisement that you really love then it's working because it's saying things that you agree with and it's talking about things that are valuable to you and it's mm-hmm. a product or a service that you agree with and you 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 know, it all it all ticks the ticks the right bells and when it's like that all of a sudden, people realise that they don't think it's, a, it's an ad in a disparaging way. They think, oh, it's a service. It's, it's a value. It's, mm. that's, that's something I feel like buying or using, and, and you think it's worthwhile. And that's what segmentation's about. It's making sure that the right stuff is presented in the right way to the right people. Mm. And when it works well, then those people don't think it's terrible targeting. They realise, oh, well, that's useful for me. I like the looks of
0: that, and everybody's happy. Very well explained. That's Jonathan Dodd from Ipsos, New Zealand, on the Weekend Variety Wireless. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Good evening, James Crute. Good evening, Ryan. How are you? Good, good. Let's get young and talk about the kids' movies out at the moment. We will begin with House with a Clock in Its Walls. Yes. Now, I'd never heard of this particular book. Apparently it's quite
3: old. I think it's from the 1970s. Never heard of it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, I thought it was one of these Johnny-come-lately, Harry Potter-esque kind of franchise, but but it's far older than that. It's a Jack Black starer. It makes the most of Jack Black's particular brand of, what, manic humour just about, <laughs> wild and crazy, whizzy. He's he's never still... Kinetic is probably a good word for him, isn't it? Yeah, true, yes, yes. He's always on the move, and this uh, this has him playing... Uh, uh, an uncle to this young boy who's been orphaned as, as a lot of cases it's always orphans these stories these fantastical tales yes. um, who comes to live in this town with him uh, this uncle is a warlock uh, and he has a best friend who's his neighbor who's played by Kate blanchett who is a witch And, uh, you know, all sorts of amazing things happen in this house. But they have this mysterious ticking noise in their house, which was apparently left by another warlock, played by Kyle MacLachlan, who had more nefarious motives. Mm. Uh, And it's one of those stories where the boy, you know, learns these sort of powers, but like Spider-Man or Spider-Boy doesn't learn, you know, responsibility with great power comes great responsibility as Mm. those Marvel movies always say. And so he does things that lead to the return of this other warlock and potentially placing everybody in danger. Look, I really enjoyed it. Um, It's a... a 1950s set story um, and it mm. kind of, it, there's lots of little homages to a, another 1950s set movie called Back to the Future that some listeners may have heard of. There are just the, the, <laughs> the movie playing at uh, the local cinema in 1955, the same year that all those events in Hill Valley took place, is called Spacemen from Pluto which was the alternative title for Back to the Future and also the title of George McFly's book. Um, there are other neat little touches like obviously with clocks and clock towers and that kind of thing mm. it's just I, I just thought it was very cool but you'll never guess who the director is who well he's most infamous in this country for making a movie called hostile part two which caused all sorts of outrage with uh torture porn as as the phrase came uh, into being people tried to ban the movie um he's made a number a number of other horror movies a guy called Eli Roth um and he's made this quite amazing family friendly movie.
0: <laughs> I saw oh, the, no, just, I've, I saw oh, I saw Hostel at the movies in Dunedin when it came out. Oh, yeah, and yeah. there was no way I was going anywhere near Eastern Europe any time soon after that. <laughs> it was So true. It, yeah, it was it was it was really gruesome. It was awful. And that was the first one. I mean the second one was even worse. It just got really
3: ridiculous and pushed the boundary too far. Look, you know, it was one of those trends in the late noughties that, that, you know, they thought they could push this kind of over-the-top violence, and and particularly violence aimed at women. Just crazy stuff. Mm. Um, And, you know, he was sort of at the forefront of it. I mean, he's kind of an acolyte of Tarantino as well. Um, But, you know, he said that Peter Jackson is one of his favourite directors. But I think this movie kind of reminds me of the work of uh, Tim Burton or Robert Rodriguez, Mm. who have both made some really cool but creepy kids films you know this this is not uh, a straightforward uh, you know no scares kind of thing there there's some genuine peril and some genuine kind of uh, scary moments but but it, you know it's
0: nicely balanced between that and the more sort of knockabout fun mm. so i mean from age wise house with a clock in its walls would you would you say five ten up
3: I reckon maybe 7, 8 to yeah. sort of 12, 13, but I also think it's one that parents will enjoy equally, actually. I just think, the, the, and the combination of Jack Black and Kate Blanchette is actually quite brilliant.
0: Okay. Okay. And Teen Titans, we speak of now, are they here to save the world?
3: (laughs) How did you guess? (laughs) Um, Look, I'd I'd vaguely heard of Teen Titans before, um, mainly because my kids have occasionally mentioned it in passing as part of their, I think, Nickelodeon... it's a TV show, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But it's been a comic book for 50-odd years. It was one of those things that... Uh, D C the you know, creators of Batman, Superman and all that got into in the early sixties. And the idea was that it was essentially these sidekicks or overlooked secondary superheroes who sort of banded together. So you have Dick Grayson or Robin from Batman. You have Cyborg, who uh, I think turned up in Justice League. I'm trying to remember whether he did or didn't. I think he did, yes. Um, and uh, a couple of other characters who I've never seen before. Anyway, um, but it started out as a kind of semi-serious sort of cartoon, and then it kind of it got reinvented a few years ago as a kind of... Uh, anti-superhero sort of thing, a kind of slight Mickey take of it. And now with this movie, it's a full-on piss Mm. take, essentially. Um, It's, I guess, a kinder, gentler South Park aimed at superheroes. I mean, the animation is, you know, suitably cheap and it looks like that. The the story is punctuated by a number of musical numbers and there's just lots of anarchic pop culture humour. So the Mm. premise of it uh, is that Robin, the leader of the Teen Titans, is upset that he hasn't got his own superhero movie. And so he's desperate to get one and will do, you know, do do it by any means necessary. And he's told the first thing he needs to do is to get an arch nemesis. And one just happens to turn up in the form of a character called Slade, who looks suspiciously like Deadpool. Uh, and there are lots of jokes about how close he looks to Deadpool.
0: If, um, uh, if Robin's in it, does that mean Dick Grayson is in it? Because isn't that... What, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of that's, that's kind of the idea. But this yeah. is this, this is
3: a this is a bizarre alternate kind of thing where. Um, uh, this this is a DC movie that wants to be a Marvel movie. It even it even uh, borrows Stan. the Marvel opening titles. It has a cameo from Stan Lee. Uh, it's just there's just some very funny cross pollination that I guess a live action movie wouldn't be able to get away with. Mm. Um, Batman uh-huh. doesn't talk in this movie, and Superman is voiced by Nicolas Cage, who has always wanted to and nearly did play Superman in a live action version, but n- no Hollywood. <laughs> the
0: producer would cast him these days. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to Christopher Robin, uh, who's, I believe he's a family man living in London in this particular flick.
3: Yeah, um, this, is, um, this, is, this is an odd one, really. I'm not sure whether it's supposed to be aimed at kids or adults. Mm. So, it, uh, I mean, we had a Christopher Robin movie come out 12 months ago, which was essentially... Uh, a dramatisation of how A.A. A. Milne uh, was inspired by the books, but also the toll that it took on young Christopher Robin who became this celebrity, you know a celebrity to rival Shirley Temple essentially, taken around the world and you know, didn't have his own life
2: yes.
3: um, This one is a more fantastical thing with a grown up Christopher Robin, sort of coming to terms with coming back from World War II It's been a long time since he's been to the Hundred Acre Wood Um, and he's facing uh, having to get rid of a whole lot of his staff at this luggage company he works at and missing out on a weekend with his daughter and wife and so he's having this kind of midlife crisis and into that steps Pooh who's lost all the rest of his friends and so there's this kind of yeah and then it's kind of this endearing interesting uh, you know lost trying to regain childhood kind of story which seems way more pitched towards adults than it does kids. It's kind of like Steven Spielberg's Hook which you might remember was Robin Williams as a grown up peter pan yeah um but without the kind of anarchic sort of uh kids undertone that that spielberg movie had i mean the only thing in terms of kid stuff i guess is the slapstick and the um cgi versions of uh, Pooh, etc and and interesting enough given that it's a disney film they've de-disney-fied winnie the pooh and the rest of them to make them more look like the
0: shepherd drawings from the books cool and uh, i don't really care about the spoiler please tell me when he catches up with tigger and eeyore and piglet and <laughs> does he find them does he yeah, find cool. them oh good yeah. no it's all good and there's some very cool
3: uh vocal casting uh, there's a guy called jim cummings who's been doing Pooh for about 20 years who's very impressive but this has also got toby jones doing uh, one of the characters um, yeah, it, it, so it's, Sophia Canido I think is uh, Kanga, yeah, I just, you know, there's something nice and endearing about it, but I don't know that I'd take the kids to it.
0: Okay, okay, so it's, it's definitely, which one do we take the kids to out of these three, I Christopher, th- Robin, no? I think,
2: yeah,
3: I think you probably take them to House With A Clock Falls, Its Walls,
0: provided they can handle a few skiers in their seven or eight. Okay, we we will and school holidays coming up soon-ish too. So are these all these three movies out at the moment? No. So Christopher Robin's the only one that's out. Uh, then
3: next week, House with Clock on the Walls opens this coming Thursday, and then Teen Titans is the week after. Mm, you know, New Zon- there's also a Goosebumps movie being thrown into the mix later in the
0: holidays too. No, yeah. I read those when I grew up. They were there was a lot of Goosebumps books so their sport for choice in regards to which yarn they they'd like to make into a film um who was the author of goosebumps rl stein that's or whatever, right who was played by jack black in the first movie but he was making some other movie that we've just talked about so he's not in the sequel okay okay no very good thank you mr croot uh no we worries. look forward to hearing again from you next saturday evening
4: Tuned in, You're
2: tuned, tuned in
4: to The Weekend Variety Wireless
0: with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. Time to talk financials on The Weekend Variety Wireless and introducing a friend of the show, Gary Stone, author, investor, researcher and founder of Share Wealth Systems. Hi, Gary, how are you? Yeah, good day, Ryan. Nice to talk again. Now, the us markets we are seeing the s&p 500 continue to rise this year and this is in the face of trade wars that could potentially have a very large impact on the markets
4: absolutely yeah i think i think when when something a big variable like like uh, trade wars come along uh, it's it's another variable but there've been lots of variables and each time a variable that's different pops its head up it it attracts a lot of attention and a lot of energy and then people go well what's the big variable going to going to do how's it going to affect the markets and it's just another variable that that's all it is yes a big one and different but just another variable nonetheless
0: we've seen the bull market now just keep steaming ahead and in new zealand here. Uh, property prices, our own stock market is going very well. The GDP figures were 1% in the last quarter. The Reserve Bank only predicted half a percent. So it appears that financially things are still trucking on in the same direction in what's now years and years of momentum.
4: It is. and you know, But let's go back to where the years and years ago started. They started with the GFC, which was a big clean out. Um, And that replacement and that happened with, with the in 2008 you know, it cleans out a lot of cobwebs not never cleans out all the cobwebs but it, it cleans out a big chunk of them and then we reset and we go again and you know people who have studied charts 100 you know, year 200 year charts financial of the financial markets can see this big picture and you know 50 percent retracements don't happen that often but they happen in the financial markets but there's lots of 15 you know, to 30 percent retracements that happen and we And whilst looking at the big picture, you don't feel the pain, when they happen, they happen. And each time that happens, the markets are setting themselves up for for another go, another run, because ultimately, stock market indices are rigged to rise. The laggards fall out, and, and the ones that go ahead and build up the market capitalization they stay in the index. So markets are rigged to rise over the long term. But what we do is whenever they have a bit of a sideways movement or a retracement, um you know, people really, the, fear, the fear-mongering ratchets up and people then look to reasons, to what, be, what could be causing this. And then we, we magnify those reasons, over-magnify those reasons. And we all, and the, the commentators all have this any penny the sky's going to fall on our head. Mm. And then what happens, like what happened last night in the US markets, the Dow Jones made a new, brand new, all-time high again in the S&P 500. And then we start going gee how can this possibly happen we've got trade wars on we've got all these negatives going on but that's what the markets do they they climb this wall of worry
0: and in terms of that history it's interesting you go back and you say looking at 50-year or 100-year markets if there is a fact it's not if it's when there is a blip on the radar and -hmm. there is a drop in the markets do they always come back stronger every time? If you look back over 100 years, does it always continue to come back stronger and stronger each time?
4: They absolutely do. Um, you know, and Let me just try and tie that into you know, the last question, talking about economies and that, is that economies and stock markets are never in sync. The market is forward-looking. So what the market's telling us now, uh, mm. with making new all-time highs in the United States, mm. and, uh, and New Zealand's doing well, Australia's not quite at a new all-time high, but it's Kind of heading there, you feel it's heading there. Um, is is that is that it's telling this, that things are going to be good in the future for the foreseeable future? How long? Well, there's always a discussion as to whether that's you know, six months, a year, or two years, or whatever. But sometimes, you know, in the next, the market saying the next six months to two years from an economy perspective, GDP growth, jobs, all that sort of thing, is looking rosy enough, um, and that's going to translate into increased earnings in the companies that that make up the index. Mm. But but markets you know, nothing goes up in a straight line and nothing goes down in a straight line and and what we tend to do what people tend to do is they take the time that the market rises they take that for granted and say yeah markets always do that but when the markets have a retracement and you know this year in February we had uh, we had about a thirteen percent retracement of the U.S. markets you know, they magnify those and and you kind of they they put far more attention on the time that the markets retrace and then they translate that into how much money has been lost out of retirement funds and there's billions here, and billions there. But they never tell you how many billions are added on when the market's rising and making a new all-time high. They kind of take that for granted. Mm. And that magnification of the negative, which is just really a human condition, is is what chases people away from the markets. And they don't don't engage it because they, they fear this volatility.
0: What is the relationship between the markets and property? You will note in Australia where you're based that property prices have just, uh, well, eased off and and started to plateau. And the same can be said in Auckland and New Zealand. Not for all the regions in New Zealand, which to be fair have been playing catch up with what's been happening in the main centres such as Auckland, Wellington has climbed, but we are starting to see property prices soften. What's the relationship in terms of the property market and the stock market?
4: Yeah, the relationship at a, at a, at a retail investor effect, That's only re, that's only place that it really happens. You know, the and because you're talking residential property here. Mm-hmm. Uh, with mutual and managed funds, you know, they don't really get into residential property, much more uh, listed and unlisted commercial property. But from a residential perspective uh, and from a, a retail investor perspective, that does, you know, they, they go in swings and roundabouts. I think what you're seeing certainly in Australia now, and I think the same might be in, in, in New Zealand is that um, is that people there's been this massive focus on property. And I can think back to you know, the 80s and the 90s, um, which was you know, my first sort of 10 to 15 years in, in the financial markets. Is that people did swing from one to the other, mm. and what plays in that is certainly property prices and what the stock market's doing as well, but also some of the regulation and the laws around doing certain things, what governments are talking about with respect to, you know, to investing and and that and in property, and um, and that then does people do sway between one and the other, but the the, the the real investors, the fair income investors, typically continue to have exposure to both.
0: Yep yeah and and that's likely what our retirement savings are doing too. There's levels of exposure to high risk, to low risk, to property, to stock markets, Um, particularly geared up, I guess, in terms of world indices as well. In the US market, there's emerging markets and then the New Zealand and Australian uh, markets too. But what are some of the, I guess, positives and negatives that some of those, uh, you know, mum and dad investors, as we like to call them Mm, in New Zealand, mm. Yeah. What would you? How would you uh, commentate on on what's been happening in those sort of investment markets for some of those larger yeah. funds? Yeah, I, I think
4: in Australia and New Zealand, um, the mum and dads are a minority in um, in in terms of being engaged in the stock market. I think, as you've quite rightly said, is they is they see their um, their involvement and their engagement in the stock market through their superannuation funds and through their retirement funds and that. Mm. and and they kind of think that that's enough. Um, Whereas research shows uh, that that's certainly not enough. Um, If people continue to invest, put away a a, a percentage of of their income on an annual basis uh, and then let that grow in in what what typically goes into a balanced fund, it's a diversified fund where superannuation retirement funds around the world typically Mm. are, are, are asset weighted or asset allocated across stock market um, infrastructure, bonds, and uh, fixed interest type, you know, even cash, and and into you know, into, into lower-performing asset classes in the stock market, that balanced, diversified type, you know, is, is the catch-cry, you've got to be diversified. You know, the, the amount of the contributions and the growth they get out of a balanced or diversified type fund is not going to be enough to actually retire on. When I say retire, I mean at a comfortable level that people are used to. The level that they are when they're working, mm. uh, and research is showing that that to be able to save your way to to sufficient nest egg, sufficient wealth, you really need to be putting away somewhere between fifteen and sixteen percent of your salary for your entire working career yes. to to uh, to allow a balanced fund to give you sufficient to be able to last. You know, these days, you know, people used to used to talk about a fifteen to twenty year retirement. Well, they're actually are now talking about. You know, a 45% chance of, of one of a couple living to 95. So you're talking about a 30-year retirement. And and to be able to you know, handle all the risks that go along with that, like longevity risk, how long you live, uh, health issues, because you're living longer and you get more health issues when you get older, being able to do the travel you want to do, maybe leaving a legacy for children. You know, that that you know, anything, anything less, you know, people in Australia, is 9.5%. Uh, If you're doing less than 15% and you're relying on a balanced fund to get you there, you're not going to get there. You have to take a sufficient interest to be able to grow your money at a better rate. And that's where, you know, know, I've spoken about this before, is where if you have more money uh, weighted into exchange-traded funds where you're getting more index-like, stock market-like returns over the long term rather than balanced returns, then you can allow the growth, the additional growth you get out of your long-term savings to make up for the amount that you're not in, not saving on an annual basis, that gap between kind of eight and eight percent and 8% and fifteen uh, percent where you should be.
0: Let's break this down because I've read your book um, Blueprint to Wealth. Um, we're talking with Gary Stone, the author of Blueprint to Wealth and and uh, .com. Yes. What you're saying is that. Don't be scared of the stock market. You can have a crack and try and invest in this stock or that stock, but really it's the index fund, the NZSX50, the ASX200, the S&P500. That's, in the US, the top 500 stocks, or the top 200 in Australia, or the top 50 in New Zealand. If you invest in those particular funds, which just track the market over time, they will always outperform individual stocks.
4: Correct, and, and and with with the benefit of time, you know, if, you, if you've got a one or two year outlook, then then maybe not. There's a lot more luck involved than if you've just got a one or two year outlook, but but if, if you've got a if you've got a, a twenty, thirty, forty year outlook, and you know, let's face it, you know, the the destination should not be when you retire in terms of the you know your target uh, your target lump sum you get. You really got to add thirty years onto that. So you know, if you're right. at twenty something right now, you should be looking at ninety five. You should be looking at you know, a 70-year outlook in your investing. If you're a 40-year-old, you should have a 50-year outlook. And if you're a, you know, a 60-year-old, you should have a 35-year outlook. And, and the thing about diversification into multiple asset classes is that it, that is a relatively short-term risk management technique that funds use to limit the downside in the short term in case we have a big 50% fall in the stock market in the next five years. But if, mm. if, if you if, – and so what people what, – what these what these funds do is they use diversification to limit risk. But what they're also doing is they're limiting growth over the long term more than they're limiting uh, the downside, limiting risk. Whereas if you invest in the stock market and, and you don't have that balanced diversification, you, 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 you're taking less risk off the bottom. So you're not managing risk as much as you would a diversification, but you're allowing – taking off the handbrake to allow far more growth over the long term. And mm. you know, and, and an extra one, two, three or four percent compounded per annum over your know, many years is hundreds, if not millions, of dollars more that you can have in your nest egg depending on the period. And and what people need to do is, is not be afraid of the stock market and, and you can reduce that fear by investing in an index which will never go to zero. Individual stocks, you can pick the wrong ones and they can go to zero and they can have a big your know, lifelong effect on your portfolio but an index cannot go to zero it's it's rigged to continue to rise and continue to 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 survive
0: gary stone thank you for your time we'd love to get you over to new zealand um potentially a, and um and get you to do a seminar or two over here you must be due and given the Springboks one last weekend <laughs> perhaps you are due a visit
4: well what september 9 next year is it when the next time the Springboks pay all black Oh, the World Cup? The world? Oh, no, it'll be, no. The, the, so the championship will be thrown into disarray next year in terms of farming.
0: Of course, of course. Well, perhaps we could get you over for that. <laughs> but I'm not going to talk rugby with you tonight, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, thank you very much for your time, Gary. Appreciate your insights into the financial world. And uh, where can we go to get more information? Well, the easiest place to go is to, I've, I've got a, what we have done, we certainly have products and things like that, but we now
4: have released an online course that people can learn about all this stuff. And it's uh, the easiest place to find it is very simple URL. It's, it's fixmynesteg.com and you'll be able to find the details
0: there. Fixmynesteg.com. Yep. Beautiful. It. Got it. That's Gary Stone on the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Just over one hour to go on Saturday the 22nd of September 2018. In the last hour of the day, we will play music. It's the songs around the theme of protest. With Women's Suffrage Week celebrating 125 years... Since women got the vote, I thought I'd play some songs about protesting. We'll do that next. It's a great hour. There's some absolute bangers in there. But first, the latest in news and sport from NewsHub.